Let's start. Any any prayer requests today? Just for Amanda. I've got and Mitch. I've, I've got them both on our and Penny, yeah. Right, both. Sorry, Penny. Doug? Penny. Penny is Bob's daughter in law who has New Year's syndrome. Yeah, she's he's he I almost forgot but we had a long talk today. He's uh, she's developing tendonitis, I guess now losing losing more of her hearing. Anybody else? Say for my friend Tamara, her daughter Lainey, shattered her ankle probably about ten years ago playing soccer. And she's about to go in for eight surgery, it's like eight parents. For the same, for the same, are, the same are you kidding me? No. Yeah. They're gonna take take her ankle apart and totally reconstruct it. Wow. Yes. Yep. Eight surgery on the same injury. God, how old is she? She's like 28. Let's see her name again. Lainey. Lainey. <laughs> I, I, I'm being facetious, and I, I think all of you know it, but there are times you've heard me be facetious in our prayers when I pray for all of us to stay away from hospitals <laughs> in order to stay safe. God, hospitals are... Let's start. Name of the Father, Son. Holy Spirit. Um, Karen, sorry. Julie, can you close that door? Um, thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, the gift of yourself in the Mass this morning, and for the special call and this season of Advent. Um, the readings from Isaiah describe this holy place, this holy mountain, and um, you're asking him to call, bring to us a call to fill up the valleys, um, level, level the mountains, to do everything we can to get those things that we make too big and those holes in our life, to even them, take them down, even them up. Um, if we could put it another way, help us all to get our pride out of the way, the tendency to make too much of things, and strengthen us in our humility. Help us to grow in humility so that we can prepare the way for you, um, bring you more into our lives. It's Advent. Help us to take this really seriously um, in what's left for the next few weeks. It's a time of waiting. The readings over the weekend were from John and Isaiah. John, pretty bitterly, angrily, um, um, getting angry at the Pharisees um, f for coming to mock his baptism, reminding everybody that he came um, to be baptized by water and, and did it knowing that he was preparing for Christ's coming. He called all of us to repentance. Um, it goes so very much directly to the work that we're reading. Um, what we do with our sins. Um, during this season, help all of us strengthen our efforts to repent, to carry our sins, not be afraid of them, not be afraid. Find a help to answer the self-righteousness, the pride, all the things that get in the way of, of bringing you um, making our lives more fully one with your own and bringing you to others. So 
Help us to do this, please, in the remaining um, time we have. Um, help us especially make efforts to wait, to learn to be patient, um, to make patience real in what we're all doing. Please help us to do this. Um, we ask a special blessing again on Amy and Mitch. Um, watch over her. Um, hard not to be fragile when you've been attacked so violently. Somewhere help her find the courage to stand up, to be unafraid, to not let this, to not let this arrest her. Um, to stand up, go back into the world and trust. And ask a special blessing on Mitch. Help him to recover. Um, help heal him. Um, and help his recovery go well. Be with Penny and her struggles. Um, and um, with those um, who worry about her, um, help their hearts to quiet. Her name again? Lainey. Lainey. Um, God, be with Lainey in this surgery again. Um, she's been here before. God, it's got to be frustrating for her. Help the doctors have sure minds Doctors are not infallible. Um, help their minds to get around this difficulty and give them sure hands in what they're doing with it. Help, help her to get her foot back. Um, and meanwhile, find in this difficulty what we hope all of us to find when we face them, a greater patience, a greater trust in you. Um, we ask all of these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Dita, I left you deliberately out of the prayer. I was going to say, protect us from people like Gita. <laughs> hey, dude. <laughs> just, the, just the thought that you would say makes my heart glow, just so you know that. Just so you know that. Some guy came up to you. I'm just I'm glad he's here. Hey, dude. <laughs> We're too nice today. I mean, I really believe that. We, we, we live in a, an arrest. I mean, I'm not kidding. You know, with, with the political correctness stuff, nobody can say anything to offend anybody anymore. Whatever you do is wrong. <laughs> God, get real. Um, I, I think it's added to the violence that we have. It's not made it easier. There's nothing you can do anymore. Um, can you all pull out the Psalms? I thought it would be appropriate to read a, an Advent Psalm. So. I enjoyed this because it reminded me of the reading from Isaiah over the weekend where he talks about approaching this holy mountain and the Jews were Orthodox Jews made a point of going to the mountain, making a pilgrimage several times a year um, in praise of the Lord and um, asking for his help to come to this, this um, sanctuary, this place of peace and rest. Um, it's the place we all long for, all of us. Psalm 16, <coughs> it's from David. 
I rejoiced when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And now our feet are standing within your gates, Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city, wall and round about. There the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as it was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There are the thrones of justice, the thrones of the house of David. For the peace of Jerusalem, pray, may those who love you prosper. May peace be within your ramparts, prosperity within your towers. For the sake of my brothers and friends, I say, peace be with you. For the sake of the house of the Lord, our God, I pray for your good. Amen. Okay. Tracy, if you're listening, just so you know, some of us are carrying you through this night um, and missing you, so hope you're doing well. Okay, quickly. Um, remember one of the principal principles, one of the great principles for St. Thomas is we cannot read things and make them what we want. We're supposed to learn to read to see what's there. So when we, whatever it is, when we go through the I just think about this guy who came up to me, you know, Saturday. I mean, he completely misread what had happened, completely made it into something that would have warranted a fight. We so often think we see things well and we don't. Um, and Thomas, guiding principle in all of his work was to learn to see what's there, not to not read for our own ideas, to not see what we want so we can justify ourselves, make ourselves right all the time. We have to learn to see. It, it takes a certain humility. Socrates taught us that thousands of years ago because he said the basic stance in life was to wonder, to ask questions. Um, and wherever he went, he kept meeting people who were convinced that what they saw was true when it wasn't. So, our invitation is to stay in the presence of wonder, to live in the presence of mysteries, and to learn to understand what we can, and know that there's a lot there that we don't understand. Um, that's a fundamental principle of Thomas. It should be for us. We're reading literature. Um, one of our principal concerns should be, are we learning to see what's there, or are we reading into it because we want to find our own beliefs? Just looking back at the at the uh, at the Shakespearean tragedies, uh, we've we're leaving. Um, I read. I think I need um, I, I think I'm not sure if I read this, but if even if I did, I'll read it again. T. S. Eliot. Um, came to a point in his reading of Shakespeare, and you know that at least I believe that T.S. Eliot is the greatest poet of the 20th, 20th century, and a, one of the greatest critical minds of the 20th century, too. He, he just, he saw things so well and um, could give them to us with such a precision. He reached a point in his life where he realized that Shakespeare was doing something he hadn't found in other poets, and he said that the latter works of Shakespeare, Winter's Tale, we've read together, we haven't done Pericles. I'm really seriously thinking about 
doing Pericles in this class. You stop, and you stop. Um, Pier, seriously thinking about doing that, just be, because it's, it's um, Dostoevsky is a great work. I mean, we're going to end on, we were planning to end on Dostoevsky. I'll ask you, maybe some of you don't want to do it, but Pericles is, is one of those late romances, and <coughs> along with Winter's Tale, more than Winter's Tale, it, it's mystical and sacramental. It's just a, something happens with Pericles that doesn't happen with any other kid character in literature that I'm aware of. He, he hears the music of the spheres. He's, it's like he's with Dante and, you know, Paul and the Blessed. <coughs> Anyway, in the, in the later plays, Shakespeare had reached a point of learning to, to see through the events of this world something else. And he says this, Those later works are the work of a writer who has finally seen through the dramatic actions of men into a spiritual action which transcends it. Dramatic action in the ordinary sense is inadequate for making these emotions perceptible. Shakespeare tends, therefore, to simplify his characters, to make them vehicles, for conveying something of which they are unaware. In poetic drama, we are lifted to another plane of reality and a hidden and mysterious pattern of reality appears as from a palimpsest. Palimpsest is a sheet on which other things have been written and you keep writing more. It's like, it, it consists of multiple levels of reality. And um, I mean, certainly one of my, I mean, what I took as one of my tasks was to try to help make clear the presence of that transcendent reality in the plays that we've read. In Portia, in Merchant, in, even in Othello, in Desdemona, in um, Othello, in Helena, particularly in All's Well, and then in Anthony and Cleopatra, because I think most people would look at Othello, certainly, and Anthony and Cleopatra as tragedies without really understanding the nature of tragedy. You know, these are bad people, they kill themselves and <clears throat> we're in a black-white world and that's it. But I, nothing in the play lends, lends, themselves, lends itself to those readings. Um, Othello deeply regrets what he does. Anthony has a recognition. Anthony and Cleopatra do as well. All of those characters learn to see something about themselves. They're like Oedipus and Oedipus Rex. They learn to see that there are horrible things in them, that they've got these sins and answer them. They're not the same people at the end. They've grown in self-knowledge. They see things that other people don't see. They feel things that other people don't feel. And Shakespeare helps take us there. So um, one, of the, one of the great things that Shakespeare gave us, or has given us now, we're leaving him, was this, um, hopefully, a, a, an increased capacity to wonder to ask ourselves if we really see what's going on right in front of us. You know, one of the, you know, from our lyric readings together, one of my favorite poems is The Supernatural Love, where that mother looks back at herself as a four-year-old, and I've loved all of those poems because they make us aware there's something going on we don't see, and yet that's our faith. We've been asked to enter into a world in which the divine is constantly present to us. Do we see it? Do we feel in our hearts what we should? Or are we in our complacency, doing our work, sort of marking time and while we're here? So one of the things that poetry's given us is this, this great ability on the poets that we've been reading 
to value the things in front of us and to see that there's something more going on with them. And who in the world sees that? How many people who are given to their jobs, making money, want power, pleasure, status, whatever it is, how many people are even aware that that's going on? Um, so, um, we, we're passing from that world, and right now we happen to be entering a world that's like Shakespeare's later plays, what's called romances. Well, I'm sorry, Mark's not here, because I, I think he got um, a little bit testy last week. At the end of the, I, from what Suzanne said to me, Mark was grousing to her and saying, um, romance, ro ro what's he doing, romance? There were always romance, <laughs> you know. I should have I should have explained because I'm sorry. I mean, Mark was right on to do that. By romance, I don't mean couples going off and having an affair, or you know. Um, by romance here, I mean something very different. I I I thought I got to it in the custom house, but I don't think I was clear enough with it. By romance, um, Hawthorne means the improbable, the miraculous, the strange. You know that I've talked about Shakespeare's plays, the end plays, as romances. That's the title they're given. Um, I'm a little bit sorry that they're sort of dismissed with that title because I happen to believe that there's something sacramental to those plays, that he's close to something holy in a way that he's not in his earlier plays. So Winter's Tale, Pericles, um, Twelfth Night in some ways, but. Did you have a question? Well, I'm just thinking, as people change throughout their lives, it's because he was getting older, and your, your perspective kind of changes when you're young. Mm -hmm. Would he be able to write the play in the same way as a 25-year-old versus a 50-something? I don't think so. So, so. so the age has something to oh, do with it? Oh, yeah, for sure. Okay. You can't read his plays without, I mean, if you look at, for sure, if you looked at his early, all the early comedies, they're light. It's like Jane Austen saying about Pride and Prejudice, too light. No, I love that novel, but, and, but she came to a point of saying, too light, and she goes on to write plays that are, you, you sense a, um, a, chain, a growth in maturity, that there's a, a, um, God, hard to, a greater gravity to what goes on, that her characters carry a little bit more. Emma, the, the great favorite for me is um, Fanny Price in Mansfield Park, because she, She's the only character that I know in Jane Austen who I think gets really close to Christ. I think what she does with Fanny is amazing, and no, nobody reads that book, Mansfield Park. Without a doubt, if you look at Shakespeare's early comedies, they're really light. In the middle period, uh, he writes what some critics call problem comedies, Measure for Measure, Much Ado, All's Well, fits in that category. But those um, problem comedies are intermixed with the tragedies. He's entered a tragic phase and then he does his great work on the dark world, the tragedies. So you get um, Julius Caesar and Hamlet and Lear and Macbeth and Othello and when you come out of that at the end and you read what people call romances, they're, perfect, they, they're perfectly adequate to, to rendering a tragic world, a darkness with the horrible things that people do. But what comes out of that darkness is a joy that's proportionally great for having borne the darkness. His early comedies don't have that. People don't bear as much. So, um, 
it's clearly, I mean, there's a, a depth that he comes to towards the end that he didn't have earlier. Um, but I just wanted to be clear before we go on. Remember in the, in the Custom House chapter where he talks about um, coming across the letter in the packet, putting it on his heart and dropping it because it burnt, and, um, bec and, and the fact that it began to stir his imagination, wondering who, who is this Hester Prynne and what happened. And, and he begins to pace upstairs like Ahab on the deck, walking back and forth. And I love that line. I'm going I'm to come back because I want to read it just to. But um, he's chastised by these imaginary characters for having sold out. He's not written anything in years. But there's that passage where he says, when he thought about the characters um, in firelight or moonlight and the transformation that they work, because once that strange kind of light gets projected on something in our world, it doesn't take the same aspect. All, all great writers have done this, all, all great writers. Dunn, Shakespeare, Homer. When you look at things in noonday, when you're directly under the sun, everything's so bright that all you can see is what's there. You know that in dawn or, or twilight. twilight, that in those two, so here's, here's noon, direct sunlight. Dunn, John Dunn played with this in his poem. Twilight and dawn um, give an eerie cast, put things in shadow. And when they're in shadow, your imagination comes into play, and you, you have to begin to wonder if there's not something there. You know kids are afraid of the dark. Right. You know, if we ask our kids to empty the garbage, do they have to go into the garage when it's dark? <laughs> they want to open the door as wide as possible and turn on the lights. And, and if you knew me at all, you'd know, as soon as they do that, I go, close the door. And <laughs> so, um, so... Hawthorne is making us aware of this distinction, absolutely crucial, absolutely crucial. Classical realism, classical realism, um, the, the, the image for that kind of literature is a mirror, even though it's not altogether accurate, but a mirror, yeah? It's mimetic in that sense, it just gives you back what your senses see. So it's absolutely empirical. Jane Austen, Thackeray, Dickens, all of those writers, the English novel, European novel in the 19th century, the French writers and others, were all writing in the, in the classic realistic novel tradition. Okay? Hawthorne and Melville are breaking from that. They're both writing romance novels, and they know it. That's why um, their novels had such a poor reception. All of the critics were um, debunked uh, Melville's Moby Dick. And they did the same thing with Hawthorne, because both of them are describing these stories where these improbable things happen. But it's their way, I mentioned this last time, it's their way of answering this black-white tendency of the modern world after Copernicus and, for, and, the, and the Protestant, black-white, save-damned, that there are these grays and not these black-whites. And so often, these beliefs that we hold, scientific or religious, it doesn't matter, very often get in the way of seeing what's there. what's there. So both of them are writing in this romantic tradition. You know that in Moby Dick, most of you have done it, that it's absurd in one sense because it's, it, it's about this whale who seems to be conscious of vengeance. And Mel, or Ahab wants to, remember, he wants to strike, he doesn't know what the source of this evil is in the world. 
but he looks at it in platonic terms. He wants to strike through this mask and get to the source of evil because he was injured by it. Remember, his leg was taken off, the wheel bit it. So his whole quest involves suffering and getting back. That's why everybody on board that ship jumps to that quest because there's nobody on that ship who hasn't suffered and who doesn't want their pound of flesh. That all of them want to get back for all the wounds in their lives that they carried. Hawthorne's writing in that same tradition, but the difference is, um, unlike Melville, he's going back to our founding in, in an extraordinary way, and he's taking sin and death as his subject. And so it's going gonna, it's gonna to take us to the major questions I'm going to get to shortly. What do you do with sin? And more precisely, what do you do with sin when it's related to the act of bringing life into the world. Because Dimsdale and Hester had an affair, they conceived, it was an illicit, it was an adulterous act. She was married to Chillingworth. He's a, he's a minister. Yeah, that's bad. Um, so the sin they've committed is a serious one, and you know that, that as, uh, from the outset of the novel, what we discover fairly early on is that Hester is made to suffer for that sin. Dimsdale's not. He's a minister. He's he's not coming forward. <laughs> so the 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 major things. It's, it's to me. I'm I'm reading this. I haven't gone to this in gone. I mean, in 40 years, I haven't looked at this. But I, it, it's so clear to me that he's dealing with something fundamental to the American character. And I, I want to underline that as strongly as I can right now. If you go back to the European novel, 19th century, take all of Jane Austen, take all of Dickens. Richardson, you, you name them. You're in what's called um, George Eliot, Thackeray, um, Trollope, you know, you go at Conrad, Henry James. Sometimes they flirt with something on, you know, on the other world, but um, if, you, if you set what Melville and Hoth are doing next to those writers, you have to shake your head and wonder because they're doing something peculiarly American the, because Europe's founding was 3,000 years ago. Yeah? I mean, Europe's been in existence forever. America's still a relatively new country. Hawthorne's going back to his beginning, and he's targeting this Puritan sense of sin and their answer to it. And it's connected with bringing life into the world, this, this child. So he's going right to the source of our, our character. And nobody else is doing this. And, and I just, I'm, you're probably going to laugh at me for doing this, but it's the poets. Melville, Hawthorne. It's not the scientists. They're not going to, sociology, politics, religion. Who's going to get to this? There's nobody in the 19th century doing what they're doing. You, and I'm going to say they can't. They're not poets. It's the poets who are making us aware of the fundamental issues for us as Americans and offering answers. Ishmael's the answer in Moby Dick and Hawthorne's the answer in, in a short <coughs> letter. So one of the fundamental questions that I want to ask here, I don't want to take it up, but, but in our reading when we come to the end of it, what, what is Hawthorne doing with this problem? When the book opens, we see how self-righteous these Puritans are, this sense of law and mercy, they, they make a point of saying that they're merciful because H Hester should be subject to death. Mm -hmm. That's her penalty. 
um, being an adulteress. The, um, the, witch, the witch trials are going to take place shortly, and over 100 people are going to be killed. 80, 80, I think 80%, the, the majority of them are women. They're going to be executed. <coughs> they could have executed um, Hester. Hawthorne knows that because he's after the witch trials, so he's, he carries that in him. Um, when, the, when the story opens, these people have set her aside for her sin. They should. It's a sin. She's in sin. But they look at her self-righteously and condemn her, and she's described from that point on in the book as being isolated by the circle of this sin. So what's Hawthorne's answer to this? He's going back to the past. He's presenting the past, but like Shakespeare and Homer, what he does changes it at the end. So I don't want to do this now, but when we get to the end, the, one of the questions I want to ask is, how is he changing this? What's he bringing to this founding generation that they couldn't? What is he helping us to see? Okay. That's looking ahead. Um, last week I reminded you, I just did a quick review of the Reformation from the, from the time of Henry when he broke off from Rome and, and, and the effects of that from the Reformation carrying down, you keep getting a fragmenting of authorities until you get to what we would call today the free, free churches, where it was the Anglicans, um, the, um, what do you call the bishops, the, Doug, the... We have bishops. No, I know the, <laughs> what you were raised, Episcopalians. Um, Presbyterians, elders, <coughs> and, tea, and so the authority keeps getting fragmented until the authority rests within the individual person, which is there always, but you've got these free churches now multiplying everywhere so that each church has its own authority and, and Christendom is fragmented. Um, and remember, the, I, the last thing I said on what happened at the beginning is that um, Shortly after the pilgrims landed and, and did their founding, they immediately broke into factions. And the two factions were those who held to the covenant of grace, free grace, and Hutchinson was one of the believers in that, that um, she was dedicated to the life of the Holy Spirit, and she believed that whatever she did was in accord of, with Scripture. This is so consistent with the, with the um, Protestant divines, the, the Reformation, Calvin Luther, that whatever she was doing was in conformity to the gospel, and she did not have to conform to the laws of the church. They took her to trial and condemned her and exiled her. Um, the other larger majority group was that group of, of Puritans who held in what was called then the Covenant of Works. They believed that faith was the principle of everything, just like Anne Hutchinson did. But they also believed that the evidence of that faith was joining the church, accepting Christ, and conforming to its ways. Okay? And it was on the basis of, I mean, to me it was, a lot of it just was trumped up, but all this evidence against her that led them to exile her. There's two things I want to just throw out here, a couple of things for you to think seriously about. Um, because we got Hawthorne aware of both of them as a, as a poet. You know that um, New England is a theocracy. That all of them, going back to Calvin, this is from Calvin, and they're all Calvinists in this sense. Calvin believed that there was no way we could know God except through Scripture. 
So he looked down on any natural philosophy. Um, if any of you have done any work in Plato and Aristotle or Catholicism or the development of the church over history, you know that one of the great accomplishments of the medieval church was that it um, reconciled itself with natural philosophy. So it produced Augustine, Boethius, St. Thomas. Because it believed that natural reason was not depraved, not corrupted, it was good, and there was something the church could learn from a reason that was well, well used. So faith and reason were compatible. The, the ultimate source of both of them was God. So there was something for Christians to learn from Plato and Aristotle or the wise pagans. Um, we, and I, I'll get to a passage in here. It's, um, what's his name? The, the, um, Wilson, John Wilson, in the passage when they come to the governor's house to see if they should take Pearl away from her, remember? Wilson says, he makes this disdainful remark, we never, we never look to natural philosophy. That was, a, that was a fundamental principle for the Puritans, <laughs> that the only source of knowledge was the Bible, and the only way we could know God is through Scripture. So natural philosophy, natural reason, was distrusted because it was corrupted. The last people they'd want to turn to are the pagans. So, so you've got this black-white world. Um, it's theocratic, and here's where I wanted to go with this. Since it's theocratic, and the laws that they follow in their minds were God's laws, to break one of those laws was a serious offense. And if you take the, the conflict that I was describing in between Anne Hutchinson and the majority, their principle was sola fidea, faith alone, but the evidence of that faith was conformity to the laws of the church, hence good works. You had to show them. That was evidence of your faith. But just think about this. What would happen if anybody did not conform to those laws? Is that clear? I hope it is, because it's sort of devastating. I hope everybody sees the implication. Because eventually it would lead to witchcraft trials. When somebody did something odd, how would you explain it? So in this opening chapter, we're watching Hester put outside the circle and this um, community that stands in judgment because she's committed a sin. It's a sin. I mean, in some sense, it should be judged. But they're doing it in a way that's specific to these beliefs. Okay? And that's the opening of the story. Is everybody okay? That's just sort of background. It's important to know going forward. Okay. No questions? I've got to think of a question. <laughs> um, okay, I want to just quickly go back through a couple of things in the Custom House, and then I want to turn to the story. Page 10. I asked the question last time, why did Hawthorne write this custom house opening when it's so different in spirit and treatment from everything he does in the story, Scarlet Letter? Page 10, he says um, that um, he has this attachment to time and place. So like Ishmael, like Melville, um, he identifies with the earth. This is where he was born, this is where he was raised. He, he speaks of it in, at the bottom of 9. Here his descendants have been born and died and have mingled their earthly substance with a soil 
until no small portion of it must necessarily be taken akin to the mortal frame wherewith for a little while I walk the streets. In part, therefore, the attachment which I speak of is the mere sensuous sympathy of dust for dust. And he, it, he uses this term sympathetic. It's like a sympathetic magic. There's this sense of oneness with other things. In this case, it's, it's the earth and the place. Down below, I know not whether these ancestors of mine bethought themselves to repent and ask pardon of heaven for their cruelties because he knows it finally led to the witch trials. I mean, he's speaking specifically about Hester, but he knows what happened. I mean, the, the violence that took place then. Or whether they are now groaning under the heavy consequences of them in another state of being. At all events, I, the present wire, as writer, as the representative, hereby take shame upon myself for their sakes and pray that any curse incurred by them may now be in henceforth removed. He's doing a little bit of what Helena did. He's taking on all those faults. He's carrying them in himself, um, hoping that it will count as some kind of repentance, expiation for what they did. Page 28. It's here in the middle of the page, page, remember, when he came to the packet and opened it up and discovered this piece of cloth. And then he said, um, the reader may smile but must not doubt my word. It seemed to me then that I experienced a sensation not altogether physical, yet almost so as of burning heat. And if the letter were not of red cloth but red hot iron, I shuddered involuntarily, let it fall upon the floor. So here's one of the first instances of what I'm going to call symbolism. And I don't mean what you, know, you generally learn in high school. I mean what the French writers gave it to mean in the 19th century, that there is this power in things to give off some influence that raises it above what we usually think of it. it it, um, it can't be explained in empirical terms. Putting this piece, who's going to, I mean, lots of people are going to laugh at this. Most of his critics did. They had nothing but scorn for Hawthorne. The critics wrote and said, what, all this stupid stuff that he's writing about. Um, page 30. This is where he's doing what I was asking you all to give some serious thought to. When he begins to contemplate on these figures, Hester and these other people in the past, and his imagination gets worked up. Remember, um, um, this is, I love this passage because these figures begin to chastise him. Page 30. He's not done a lick of writing in three years, as long as he's working it. It led me to ask the question last week, how often does our work and I'm saying this very, very seriously. How often does our work make us complacent? We've settled, we've got a job, we have a paycheck, everything's comfortable. Are we, are we sufficiently aware of the effects of that, let's say, on our call from Christ, what he's asking of us? He says, middle of 30. Um, so little adopted is the atmosphere of a custom house to the delicate harvest of fancy and sensibility that I, had I remained there through ten presidencies yet to come, I doubt whether the tale of the scarlet letter 
would have ever been brought before the public. The longer you're at work at something, the more dangerous it is because it can make us comfortable. The characters of the narrative would not be warned, warmed and rendered malleable by any heat that I could kindle at my intellectual forge. They would take neither the glow of passion nor the tenderness of sentiment, but retained all the rigidity of dead corpses and stared me in the face with a fixed and ghastly grin of contemptuous defiance. What have you to do with us? It's like something, I'm gonna, it's like a sting of consciousness. Conscience, we sometimes have those moments when our conscience bites us. We think, why did I do that? Why am I doing that? It's like somebody speaking to us from inside. What have you to do with us, that expression seemed to say. The little power you might once have possessed over the tribe of unrealities is gone. You have bartered it for a pittance of the public gold. Go then and earn your wages. That's like saying to Judas, you've got your 30 coins. Go and So, so he does this all in a spirit of humor. It's facetious. But also, I mean, there's several things going on here that make us aware that a lot, of, a lot is going on. He's taking this on himself. He's chiding himself because he's not written. And it's as if voices from the past are speaking to him. And, and interesting, he lets us know at the end that he hoped that he wouldn't get fired, that he might be one of the survivors, but at the end he ends up being fired. From the world's perspective, that would be looked at as a bad. He's lost his job. Everybody feel bad for him. From this other perspective, we see in some sense that was a blessing. It got him back doing what was a much harder thing to do. Because at his heart, he's a writer. Um, so, um, going over, um, 31, moonlight in a familiar room falling so white upon the carpet, he goes on, the firelight is the, scent, the same. They seem to lose their actual sub substance and become things of intellect. Nothing is too small or too trifling to undergo this change and acquire a dignity. There's something from the spirit of man that gets projected out. You can call it music. When people sit and play music or write or um, it can be love from one person to another but we know that whatever's going on is just beyond what appears to our senses a man standing next to a woman or a piece of paper with notes on it or you know a story that something creative is issuing forth some creative it's like we become co-creators with God that we return to Eden, and with God, we begin to create again. So um, what Hawthorne's doing here is making clear that there are two ways of reading the world, literature. One is a mirror, call it a mirror, or a lamp, or no, sorry, a mirror. This is mimetic, or a lamp or the intellect, what he's calling the intellect, that it can project outward and bring something of itself into its creation. So that would be true of Bach, Mozart, um, Shakespeare, anybody who's doing some creative work. And oftentimes us, sometimes in small ways, um, I think Suzanne does that a lot in the garden. If you've been to our house, you know that you cannot walk into our house and not see flowers everywhere. <clears throat> and I'm not sure that you'll see it. 
But if you looked at the flower, flowers, they're all arranged. And she's um, got kind of sympathy with nature to work with it. So he's giving us an exegetical principle. He's helping us to understand what it is we're about to enter so that we know how to approach it. Because if we, if we go into this expecting classical realism, we're going to do nothing but find faults. It's going to be all wrong. The critics are going to say, what is he doing? What is he doing? He's helping us to understand that he's doing something more, just as Melville does. Okay? Let me stop now before, because I want to I want to get to the I want to get to the book. But any questions about any of this? Because right. you always have questions. <laughs> and I know you do right now, you're probably just not asking them. <laughs> No, I've actually reminded myself and forgot again. Suzanne just reminded me I forgot. I meant to do this before we said prayers. Next Monday is communal penance, yeah. nine, mm-hmm. here. Ordinarily, what we've done before is hold class and people get up and go during it. Um, communal penance usually goes well after the class. Yeah. Sometimes people have waited. I went after class last time. but. But if that's going to present a difficulty with anybody, I'd, I would be glad to cancel. So what, I'd, what I'm suggesting here is that I'd like to do it and have you guys feel free to get up and go in line and, you know, any time, come back. I'll, I'll, I'll go after class because I want to go. Um, I know that they'll be here. But I want to be careful. If, if it's going to be awkward, I'll cancel class. No fussing. We'll just cancel and put it off with what do people think? Keep class. Hmm? Keep class. I'd like to. Yeah. Um, here, just so you know, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to get through the first eight books today. Next class, next eight books, third class, the last. So tonight, next week, and the week after, Cover Scarlet will be done. Okay. So can you all, are you okay to do that? Feel comfortable going to confession? I, I don't because I, I, the last time I, we, I, we did that, I mean, I was the last, I, I was almost doing a confession go walking out the door with the priest, but I mean, I was, Bob, I, I followed Bob, come and start you. early. Just go at the beginning. If you make yeah. it to class, you do, and if you don't, that's okay. fine. Don't right. worry about it. All right. Okay. Don't worry. But Just they, go. Yeah, they Confession's more important. Yeah. I'm going to bring okay. my daughter. Good. To hear. Before meeting it. Yeah. Good. Chester goes, he's going to be to midnight anyway, so. <laughs> we love him. Uh-huh. Really now. Hey! <laughs> I know, I was waiting for that. Huh? <laughs> if that's a, let's plan to do that, okay? And by the way, it, it, I hope, I don't want to be tempting you, but my, my first encouragement is if you're taking, even if you're not taking confession seriously, go to confession. That would be my encouragement. Everybody go. Come to class, take a break, go, go, come back. Oh, we'll be here. I'm going to go after class is over. But I just, I just think confession is so important for all of us. Okay? Okay, um, the great themes. 
The, um, the most important theme of um, Scarlet Letter, I believe, is sin and possible redemption. And I think it's impossible to identify that thing without lining it up with jealousy, revenge. You can't separate them. It's a revenge story. Um, when the story opens, Hester is made to come out to stand on the scaffold for several hours and then put the um, badge on a, for her life. She will be, uh, um, what's the word? Ostracized. It's, it's, um, it's another word, but ostracized. Um, she will be held outside of the community. Dimsdale, Dimsdale's participation, it's unknown. He keeps it a secret. He doesn't, um, he doesn't admit it. Um, but um, it's a graver sin in one sense because she's still married. She didn't know that. Her, her husband had left. And, but, I mean, it was still secret anyway. Um, but he wants revenge bitterly on the man who did it, the more so because the man has not set forward. So the, the two lines that are in tension with each other are the, are the Hester Dimsdale love plot line, mm -hmm. that she has to carry that and, and gradually we learn that he, he's the father, that they made love together and, and conceived this child. And lining up with that from the very beginning is Chillingworth who wants to take vengeance on this man. And he, when he has that interview um, in the prison scene with Hester, he, he um, threatens her, tells her to, uh, to not um, disclose the secret, the identity, his identity as her husband, because if she does, I mean, this is a sort of strange threat, uh, that he's going to get after her. He would have done that anyway. I mean, he, he said, I'll, 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 I'll reveal him and it'll be a disgrace to the community. And so it's on the basis of that threat that she keeps it secret. Later, we'll learn that she regrets that, that she realizes she should have been truthful. She should not have kept that secret. In fact, Dimmedale's response when he finally hears from her what she did is to say, this is her, says, I do not forgive you. Oh, my God. Now, wait on judgment. Wait. Wait. No, wait. 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 So, um, but there's that scene where he threatens her. She, and, and you know, in, in terms of the novel, it's so easy to see that. She's frail, she's weak, she just had born a child, she's humiliated, she's going to have to bear this. So however implausible it seems, that to me there's a degree of realism. He's, he's threatening her, she's frightened, she didn't know that he was in the picture, now he is. She's keeping the father's identity secret and, and Chillingworth comes in and threatens her. So the two lines, the love-sin plot and the vengeance are absolutely lined up. And here's where I'm going to probably shock everybody more than... I've been saying from the beginning that um, if we don't learn to identify with every character in a work of art, then we're reading too selectively. Because um, we should be learning to see ourselves. And I remember um, that was on my mind when we were looking at um, All's Well at Ends Well and Helena. Remember when I was talking about the doubling involving Parolles and Bertram? That Parolles was an image of something in Bertram? We, we had to give that some thought because there's something that's going on in a man. Bert, I'm taking Bertram as a good-looking, suave, educated, the kind of man that women would have flocked to. 
Parolles is an image of everything disgusting in him that he doesn't show on the surface. It's Shakespeare's way of helping us to see distances, different levels. Where I'm going with this is that when we're doing Iago, um, I believe Iago is an image of something in all of us in the modern world. Remember when Othello and uh, Desdemona reach Cyprus, you know, and they're on, they, they've landed and Amelia and Iago and Desdemona are facetiously playing with each other and Iago's asked to make a compliment and his compliments are put downs. I mean, they're, they're done humorously, but they're put downs. And he has that line, I am nothing. And remember before, at the very beginning of the play, he's the one who says, I am not who I am, which is an inversion of Yahweh's I am that I am. He's the antithesis of God. There's nothing that he, nothing that he does, absolutely nothing, that doesn't have as its end destruction. He wants to hurt people. That's who he is, beginning to end. His comment there in that exchange is, I'm nothing if I'm not critical. I'm nothing if I'm not critical. Chillingworth is that same kind of figure. Chillingworth wants to use his critical mind to bore into the hearts of people to find out what's underneath so he can get to them. And in this case, it's to find out who the husband is. They're both very modern. They're instances of human beings whose intellects are larger than their hearts. One of the things that Melville and Hawthorne were most concerned about was in this scientific world that we're living in. It encourages people to live in their heads using their intellects so they get enlarged heads, but their hearts shrink. They don't know how to love, they don't know how to feel, they know how to argue, they know how to criticize. But to love is another thing. C.S. Lewis in Abolition of Man made the argument that, and this is following Plato, in our intellects, we're angels. We're like angels. In our belly, we're like animals. It's only in our hearts that we're more fully human. The great, this is C.S. Lewis's argument, and I believe it, have always believed it before. I mean, go back to Aristotle and Plato, and they're saying the same thing. The greatest task of, for the modern world is learning to develop good sentiments, good hearts. When you listen to the political debates going on today, how often do you hear a good heart behind the way people use reason? Now, remember Dante's line, women who had the intelligence of love. How often when you hear the debate, the arguments that people make, do you hear good hearts in the reasons that they use? The great task of the modern world is to form good sentiments, good hearts, good emotions. And I'm going to say that one of the best ways to do that is through the arts, through music and poetry. You know that good music, good music is an expression of our emotional life. That's what music is. So in this opening scene, we see people who are hard-hearted, very self-righteous, and this woman who's set outside by her sin. So um, that's the great theme of um, Scarlet Letter. Um, as Hawthorne presents it, I think he's showing us something fundamental to the American character. Our beginnings are Protestant through and through. Um, these ideas of sin and grace. Um, another way of looking at these major themes is in terms of inner and outer. Hawthorne, the poet, is taking us into the interior of 
Hester and Dimsdale, and even Chillingworth. We get to know them. When you listen to the characters engage with uh, the other character, the town people, if you watch the governor, John Wilson, the pastor, all the townspeople, when you, when you listen to their comments and what's going on, how often do you get any sense that they have any clue what's going on in the inside of another human being, Hester Dimsdale? They're standing outside making judgments. You following? So he's making us aware, the way poets have always been, of this, dis Anthony Cleopatra, of this dr discrepancy between appearances and reality. Those are Plato's terms. Remember, to come out of the cave, we have to begin to question appearances. We have to genuinely begin to wonder, <clears throat> to not let appearances take us over. That is to stand somewhat in the presence of mystery. Okay, any questions or I wanna I wanna go to some passages now to pick out two things that are that I think are essential to what Hawthorne's doing. But any any questions? It's what the poets have been doing all along, helping us to take seriously what's before us in terms of appearances and yet help us to go deeper, to see that something more is going on and it's important for us to try to relate to it, to make it part of what we do. Otherwise the danger for us is to be judgmental, just to think we've always got the answers. And no? Okay. I want to look at two things that'll take us through. Here's, here's the briefly a summary. Just the first eight chapters, because we're going to do eight this week, eight next week, and then the last eight. First chapter, she's out of prison. Okay. Second chapter, the marketplace, she comes out to take her, um, her stand on the scaffolding for several hours to um, shame her and then when that time elapses she will be required to wear that scarlet letter for as long as she lives there. In the third chapter called The Recognition, Chillingworth comes to see her and warns her that if she gives away his identity he's going to do everything in his power to find her husband and discredit him. In four, um, oops, sorry, sorry, Three, she sees him. In four, the interview takes place between her and Chillingworth. Five, describes Hester at her needle. She does all this needlework. She's very creative. I think that's so interesting. She's a poet. She has this poet. She wants to create. And the interesting thing is because of her shame, she will not let, she will not let, oh, this, is, this Protestant stuff, God, so inhibits her. Her shame is so great that she cannot give in to it. When she does needlework for anybody other than Pearl, she will not let that creative energy have its way to flower. Because she knows, and he makes it clear, that if she does, she'll produce this elaborate, beautiful work that's not stern or severe enough. When she does anything with Pearl, she makes these dresses that, that in some sense resemble the scarlet letter itself. Um, and then in six, 
we get a description of Pearl and what she's done. I want to come to that in a second. She's, she's described as almost being demonic, a child of Satan. In seven, we get to the governor's hall. They've asked for a meeting because the governor, building um, Ham and John Wilson and the other elders, are concerned that, that um, Pearl should be, they're afraid that Pearl will grow up unsaved if she's left in Hester's care. So they want to take the child away from the mother so that the child can be brought up well. It's a serious concern for them. And so the problems in the community are getting darker. Dimsdale stands up for her in eight and says that the relationship between a child and a mother is sacred that to take away the child from the mother would, would be to go against God. So the, the chapter closes with, um, with Hester um, having um, responsibility still for Pearl. <coughs> Here's the plot, just briefly, as I, this part of this that I've just described. From the beginning in the prison house, To the um, to the mansion, the, the what do you call it, the big hall. There are two moments moments of complication um, because remember most most works of art, like a Thomas Question or a Mozart or Bach piece, that it begins with a theme and that it it reaches a point where that theme is complicated and another voice is introduced into it and then possibly other complications. And they go towards a climax, whatever the buried problems were that there were in the beginning get, come to the surface and they're, um, they're followed by what's called a denouement of falling off and then a resolution. All, almost all great works have that form. The, the two complications in this first eight chapters is one Chillingworth's visit to the prison. Because we know when he comes in, that infinitely complicates her life. She's under a threat. Um, Chillingworth is gonna, we know from what happens, he's gonna, he's gonna introduce the sinister element. When he starts working with Dimsdale as his um, physician, his only end is sinister. He wants to hurt him. So this sin-love plot becomes terribly twisted because there's this evil person who wants to do something bad. So the plot thickens. It gets more complicated. It, the second complication is when they want to take Pearl away. Except that first complication is also a crisis because you know that if she loses Pearl, if she loses Pearl, she's gone. She says so herself. Um, 96, 97. So the discussion is concluded. Um, Hester is allowed to keep Pearl, and they're leaving. 96 at the bottom. As he descended the steps, it's averred that the lattice of a chamber window was thrown open, and forth into the sunny day was thrust the face of Miss Mistress Hibbins, Governor Bellingham's bitter-tempered sister, and the same who a few years later was executed as a witch. Once again, Chaucer or Fox. Hawthorne is locating this in actual historical event. He's doing this again and again to do everything he can to remind us this is not a romance. Everything that happens is rooted in history. It's going to make it hard for critics to just pass this off. 
Bellingham's bitter-tempered sister and the same who a few years later was executed as a witch. Hiss, hiss, she says. Wilt thou go with us tonight? There will be a merry company in the forest, and I well nigh promise the black man that comely Hester Prynne should make one. Remember, the forest is appropriate because the forest was thought of as the setting of the unregenerated. It was nature. It was depraved. So that's where the black masks, where black things typically take place. Um, where black masses are held and witches' Sabbaths. And so um, there will be a merry company, and I will not promise the black man that comely Hester Prynne should make one. Make my excuse to him, so please you, answered Hester with a triumphant smile. I must tarry at home and keep watch over my little pearl. Had they taken her from me, I would willingly have gone with thee into the forest and signed my name in the black man's book too, and that with my own blood. So we know that a crisis has just been passed. That if they had taken Pearl, the likelihood is that Esther would have been so overcome with despair, she would have lost her faith. So that's partly an indication of how much her faith is with her, however any, how much everybody questions it. She has it. It's holding her. However defiant or whatever, you, she still has it. If they had taken Pearl, she would have been lost. What else would she have lived for? Um, She's alone. She's isolated. Okay. Um, so two things that I want to take a minute with now. <clears throat> I read this passage from uh, Eva Winters last time. Um, and I don't have it. Yeah, here it is. The Puritan theology rested primarily upon the doctrine of predestination and the inefficaciousness of good works. It separated men sharply and certainly into two groups, the saved and the damned, and technically at least was not concerned with any subtler shadings. Mm -hmm. This in itself represents a long step towards the allegorization of experience. A habit of seeing things in terms of black, white, and abstractions of the mind. This is absolutely crucial. That is, abstractions take the place of concrete reality. We're in an idea in our head. Um, this is a step towards the allegorization of experience. For a very broad abstraction is substituted for the patient study of the minute of moral behavior long encouraged by Catholic tradition. Um, so I'm sure you're aware of it. I'm, I'm assuming that my naming it will make it clear to you. Hawthorne is a realist. He's writing within the realist tradition, but there's a quality of, of an allegorist. He tends to see things in terms of abstraction. And you know that. Oftentimes he will describe um, Hester's sin as a type of sin. And he means by that that it's because it's a sin, it represents all sin. When they look at Pearl, they talk about her as a sign, an emblem that she is a reflection of the sin in her mother's heart. So she represents all sin. Because remember, the issue here is the saved and the damned. Anybody who's in sin, who's not conforming to the church rules, is, is likely on the way to being damned. That's the black-white black, world. So there's this tendency to look at the world in terms of signs or symbols. Okay. Hawthorne does it a lot, and I want to just go through a couple to, to make this clear. Take a look at page 42. 
At the very beginning of the novel, when Hester's coming out of the door, you remember, she has to pass by this black rose bush, page 42. Um, there's authority, he says, for believing it had sprung up under the footsteps of the sated Anne Hutchinson as she entered the prison door. Be so there's a historical precedent. Somebody's already been treated like Hester. Anne Hutchinson was cruelly treated, exiled, because of her beliefs. Not, I mean, because those beliefs were an indication that she was in sin. She didn't conform to the church teachings. She was a sinner, going against God. Finding it so directly on the threshold of our narrative, which is now about to issue from that inauspicious portable, what's about to issue from the portable, the portal? Hester and the book, the book. The narrative, which is now about to issue from that inauspicious, that is an artwork, not just a person, but an artwork. We could hardly do otherwise than pluck, than we, the narrator, pluck we and the reader, could pluck one of the flowers and present it to the reader. It may serve, let us hope, to symbolize some sweet moral blossom that may be found along the track or relieve the darkening close of a tale of human frailty and sorrow. What's the function of art at this moment and that rose? What is art doing in Hawthorne's mind? Is everybody following my question? Is it Karen? Do you? I'm not following your question. Sorry. He's saying he's just he he's in the custom house or was. Now he's going back 150 years. He's describing a story that took place. Okay, it's not of his time. But now he's saying that um, Hester is is about to exit from the prison. And um, he can't do better by her in the story than offer the reader a flower from that portal right next to the prison door. There's a, a black rose bush. We could do hardly better than pluck one of its flowers and present it to the reader. It may serve, let us hope, to symbolize some sweet, symbolize some sweet moral blossom that may be found along the track or relieve the darkening close of a tale of human frailty and sorrow. What's the function of art here? Art was not present, really. Puritans didn't believe in a lot of... I mean, yeah, that's true. You, I didn't you know, very right, stark right. things. So, so, right. so that maybe means something that's it's absent. That type of feeling, emotion, beauty is not there. But literally, just on a literal level, did any of you receive a black rose when you started reading this? Did anybody hand you a rose? No. So literally it's not true, it's a sign, it's a symbol. It's a symbol. And, and by, by the way, that symbol means for him, this is what's really crucial, he's not just telling somebody a story, he's saying this story is living. And we're taking it into us as a living thing to help us deal with the tale of human frailty and sorrow to help relieve the sorrow in our life. The, the closest thing that I can get to this is if you think about the word Christ and poetry the way I've been describing it for so many years, that we take the word into us, 
hopefully, and it changes our lives. It's not just this object to hold out there. How many of you have listened to a piece of music and, and honestly felt for a moment transported, that you become absolutely one with the, mo with the music at that moment as if it entered you? It becomes part of your existence. Imagine somebody growing up without music. That, that what he's saying is that this work, let me call it a grace, this offering is being offered to us as a living thing, just like that flowered, to give us hope to relieve the pain in a tale dealing with human frailty and sorrow. Imagine what your life would be like if you didn't have these stories to help you. Or music. With all the pain and sorrow there is in our life. I would hope that what we've been reading together with Shakespeare and Dante, and you know, that it's not just ideas in our heads that it's changing our hearts, the way we see, the way we feel, what we do. So this is a form of symbolism. It's not, an it's not a scientific abstraction outside our heads. It's a living thing um, that, that, that participates in our own lives. It's living, it's, act it's active. But look at some of the other forms it takes, just to, just to uh, turn to 74. This is in the scene in which Hawthorne describes Pearl pretty concretely on 74. This is about Hester. Yet these thoughts affected Hester less with hope than apprehension. She knew that her deed had been evil. She could have no faith, therefore, that its result would be for good. I don't understand why she didn't kill herself. She lives with no hope for good, as Hawthorne describes her. She's got a sin. Day after day, she looked fearfully into the child's expanding nature, ever dreading to detect some dark, arid, wild peculiarity that should correspond to her own. If you grow up thinking nature's depraved and you're in sin, and there's almost nothing in her life right now except sin that defines her, then how could she look at her child in any other way except through that dark lens? Um, Go on over um, on page 73. She keeps describing, or Hawthorne keeps describing her now. But or else Hester's fears deceived her. It lacked reference and adaptation to the world into which she was born. The child could not be made amenable to rules. It's like Anne Hutchinson. In giving her existence, a great law had been broken, and the result was a being whose elements were perhaps beautiful and brilliant, but all in disorder or with an order peculiar to themselves amidst which the point of variety and arrangement was difficult or impossible to be discovered. Go down. However white and clear originally they had taken the deep stains of crimson and gold, the fiery luster, the black shadow, and the untempered light of the intervening substance. These are clothes. All the, everything that Pearl does, everything that she does imbibes this dark quality. Above all, the warfare of Hester's spirit at that epic was perpetuated in Pearl. She could recognize her wild, desperate, defiant moods, the flightiness, um, all of that. Um, they were now illumined by the morning radiance of a young child's disposition. Um, middle of page 76. Her mother, while Pearl was yet an infant, look at this, how dark, 
grew acquainted with a certain peculiar look that warned her when it would be labor thrown away to insist, persuade her plea. It was a look so intelligent and inexplicable, so perverse, sometimes so malicious, but generally accompanied by a wild flow of spirits that Hester could not help questioning at each moment whether Pearl was a human child. She often associates, wonders if she's not something from the devil. Um, 70, 78 in the middle. These outbreaks of a fierce temper had a kind of value and even comfort for her mother because there was at least an intelligible earnestness in the mood instead of a fitful caprice that so often thwarted her in the child's manifestations. It appalled her, nevertheless, to discern here again a shadowy reflection of the evil that had existed in herself. All this enmity and passion had Pearl inherited by an inalienable right out of Hester's heart. Mother and daughter stood together in the same circle of seclusion from human society. Go down. The unlikeliest materials, a stick, a bunch of rags, flowers, were the puppets of Pearl's witchcraft without undergoing any outward change. She will be described as an emblem of sin. Um, 80, middle of the page. Once this freakish elvish cast came into the child's eyes while Hester was looking at her own image of them, as mothers are fond of doing, and suddenly for women in solitude and with troubled hearts are pestered in unaccountable delusions. Mothers sometimes are. Emotionally, they're overwrought. I mean, dealing with a child is... There's no way I can adequately describe that. We, we understand. <laughs> she fancied that she beheld not her own miniature portrait. So when she looks in her eyes, this is so important, she's not getting a mirror. It's not a mirror image reflecting her. Because very often, Hawthorne say, when a mother looks in the eyes, the, the child will give a reflection of herself. She fancied that she beheld not her own miniature portrait, but another face in the small black mirror of Pearl's eye. It was a face fiend-like, full of smiling malice, yet bearing the semblance of features that she had known full well, though seldom with a smile, and never with malice in them. It was as if an evil spirit possessed the child. Um, she asks um, where um, Pearl is from, and Pearl puts it back in her, says, where, do, where am I from? And um, she says on page 81, um, Hester says, your Heavenly Father sent you, and Pearl shakes her head and said, he did not send me. I have no Heavenly Father. <laughs> Go down. <clears throat> she remembered betwixt a smile and a shudder the talk of neighboring townspeople, who seeking vainly elsewhere for the child's paternity and observing some of her odd attributes had given out that the poor little Pearl was a demon offspring such as, ever since old Catholic times, had occasionally been seen on earth through the agency of their mother's sin to provoke some foul and wicked purpose. Luther, according to the scandal of his monkish enemies, was a brat of that hellish breed. So he's condemning both Luther and Catholicism. Nor was Pearl the only child to whom this inospacious origin was assigned among the new... So I'm overemphasizing something too much here. I mean, because there are all these passages that show she's a normal child. I mean, she's, she's lively, playful, but she's also been isolated because of what's happened to her mother. She, wherever she goes, she's going to be ridiculed. So she's growing up, experiencing the isolation of her mother in herself. She doesn't understand it. Children mock her. They make fun of her. They throw things at her. 
That's not her mother's doing, it's not breeding, it's the circumstances of this community by virtue of its beliefs. Okay, here's where I wanted to go for the last, so, um, in 84, repeatedly in this passage that I just read, Pearl is described as an emblem of the sin. She's a sign of the sin. So she's an allegorical abstraction. You won't find that in Faulkner. You won't find that at Hemingway. Okay? Page 84 at the bottom. The token which Hester Prynne was doomed to wear upon her bosom, it was the scarlet letter in another form. The scarlet letter endowed with life. The mother herself is as if the red ignominy were so deeply scorched into her brain that her conceptions assumed its form, had carefully wrought out similitude, lavishing many hours on morbid ingenuity to create an analogy between the object of her affection and the emblem of her guilt. So, and Pearl was the one as well as the other. So each thing has its own identity, but it's also a sign of another. That's an allegorical abstraction. So what he's doing is using his mind um, to project a meaning on a sign. Now, I wanted to, because this, this makes it really clear on page 87, when they come to Bellingham's hall, the, the, the mansion, um, it describes them walking among the halls and rooms of this vast, I don't think that, that's amazing to me that it could have been built this soon, but they're large pictures that go back to England and their history. On page 87, they're describing a suit of mail, armor, okay? About the center of the oaken panels that lined the hall was suspended a suit of mail, not like the pictures and ancestral relic, but the mortal modern date. Go down. Um, little Pearl, who was as greatly peeled with the gleaming armor, as she had been with the glittering frontispiece of the house, spent time looking at the polished mirror of the breastplate. Mother, cried she, I see you here. Look, look. Esther looked by way of humoring the child, and she saw that, owing to the peculiar effect of this convex mirror, the scarlet letter was represented in exaggerated and gigantic proportions so as to be greatly the most prominent feature of her appearance. In truth, she seemed absolutely hidden behind it. Describe that symbol. What's going on in that scene? Pearl standing in front of a, a mm -hmm. armor plate, right? It's, I mean, it's, it's a real thing. I mean, yeah. we, we, but what is Faulkner doing with it to change it? Describe what's going on. Because it's not just a description of a little child standing in front of a male, right. you know, a breastplate. Yeah. It's symbolic, by the way he describes it. Symbolic of what? What's it doing? The She's, yeah, she's small, and that's huge. Yeah, it has become so. I mean, is everybody following? I mean, he's he's showing how something can take on such a great significance because of the our beliefs and what we do with them. That when she looks in that mirror, that plate of armor, that thing eclipses her. She disappears. It's so large. So in one sense, it's it's an exact symbol. It, it's an expression of exactly the proportions that. That mark of retribution has taken on for the community and for her, for Pearl, I mean for Hester and her child. Okay, so Hawthorne is a realist, but he's he's writing in a romantic vein in the way that he uses symbols that take us past 
past just naturalistic reality. Jane Austen would never write a passage like that, not in her life. Dickens gets close to it, you know, um, Trollope wouldn't. George Eliot wouldn't. Well, she's never married, never had children. She doesn't have a personal... It, I, see, that's not it. It's well, the, it's part of it. It's, yeah, but it's, it's not it. It's, it's, um, Austen never deals with transcendent realities. There's only one scene in all of Austen that I can remember, and it's sinister, and it's just passing. She doesn't deal with transcendent things. She's in a secular world, a domestic world, and, and Dickens, Dostoevsky's in a in a, in a secular or a domestic world, but you can't read Dostoevsky without being aware we're we're in the presence of other things. Hawthorne's doing something different. He's making us aware of the distortion between realities and empirical realities and spiritual realities. What what people can do to each other. What we can do to each other by what we, by our actions. Yeah. His description also was, if you consider a breastplate, it's flat in the front, but it curves convex. Yes. At the top and the bottom and around. He the side. knows that. So she's looking at it. She's it's probably seeing in real size yeah. the A, you know, scarlet letter right. or whatever, right. and everything else is the it's whole still. universe of you know what can be reflected. Gone. It's tiny. Right. It's tiny. And so to her, it's, that's... Right. Well, and also, I mean, the, the, yeah, that was a wonderful description, Carl. It, it's the, he knows all of that. Or, or he couldn't use it. He, as an artist, he's confined to what's there. The point that I'm trying to make here is that he uses what's there in a way that's symbolic, that makes us aware there's proportions of other things. So it's not just to be taken literally or passed over. We, when, when you get to the end, when, when Dimsdale and Hester have their meeting again, when they meet up, Pearl's going to be by a brook and should be reflected in. Chaucer's, Hawthorne is constantly using moonlight, fire, rivers, mirrors, reflections as a way of making us aware of these discrepancies, that there's, there's, there's this disorder to the world and as a writer, he's got to find some way of rendering it. Dickens does it a good bit, this, these disfigurings of things. Here, one more thing before we go. Turn quickly to page um, 45. 45. This is what we can call um, alternative possibilities. So we've seen Hawthorne's use of symbolism, rom rom romantic, magical kinds of symbolism to make us aware there's more going on in the world than most people want to. As a matter of fact, here, hold on, can I go? Remember when we did the Custom House? How many of the people in the Custom House would give any credence to Hawthorne's stories? No, absolutely nobody. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing but gooses to be cooked and food and sleep and... I mean, you, you can't imagine any of those people picking up a book and being shaken, you know? So Hawthorne, remember, he knows he's in a world that's been changed. We're 200 years from the Puritans. Something's happened. As a, as a writer of novels, he's trying to help us hold on to something strange in the world when everything about the world is removing it. Turn to 45. This is just after 
And by the way, this technique is going to come up again and again and again. It's going to have a, a really important place in the next crisis because the next major crisis is going to occur here in the next eight books. When one night, Dimsdale, who's, who's getting worked on by Chillingworth, he's going to be so overtaken with guilt, he's going to leave his room at nighttime and go out to the scaffold under the moonlight. And he's going to stand up at the scaffold as if he's finally acknowledging publicly his sin. Except it's everybody's asleep, it's dark. But interestingly, individuals come by. So it's a frightening moment of exposure. And if, when you read it, if you go back and reread it, watch the response of people afterwards because you've got 10 different responses of what actually took place. Why does Hawthorne do that? Okay, here it is here, what we can call alternative possibilities. 44, Hester, Hester comes out or is about to come out, 44. Um, bottom of the page, good wife said a hard featured dame of 50, I'll tell you a piece of my mind be greatly for that public behoof if we women, being of mature age and church members and good repute, these are all very <laughs> strong believing Christians. Church members in good repute should have the handling of such malefactresses as this Hester Prynne. What think ye, gossips? If the hussy stood up for judgment before us five that are now here and if not together, would she come off with such a sentence as the worshipful these men, these stupid men and what they're doing? Have a word, Mary, I trow not. People say, said another, that Reverend Master Dimsdale, her godly pastor, takes it very grievously to heart that such a scandal should have come upon this congregation. The magistrates are God-fearing gentlemen, but mercifully overmuch. That's a truth. That is, they're too soft, these men. At the very least, they should have put a brand of hot iron on Hester's forehead. Madam Hester would have winced at that, I warrant me, but she, the naughty baggage, little will, she'd care what they put upon her bodice of her gown. Look, why look you, she may cover it with bro brooch or such heathenish adornment, and so walk the streets as brave as ever. Ah, but interposed more softly a young wife holding a child by the hand, let her cover the mark as she will, the pang of it will always be in her heart. What do we talk of marks and brands, whether on the bodice of her gown or flesh of her forehead, cried another female, the ugliest as well as the most pitiless of these self-constituted judges. This woman has brought shame upon us all and ought to die. <clears throat> is there not law for it? Truly there is, both in scripture and the statute. Remember, the, the, this is stunning. <clears throat> what was the um, punishment for adultery? Stoning to death. Death in the Old Testament. What happened with Christ and the adulterous woman? Let him throw the first stone. Yeah. The judges, I think this is, the judge, Christ is not doing away with the law. I, I hear priests, do, Christ is not doing away with the law. The judges go off chastise. Hopefully, more, a, bringing, ready to bring a more charitable spirit to what they do under the law. He says to the woman, go off and sin no more. They're both under the law, but he's brought a different spirit in dealing with it. So these women are saying, it's in, the, it's in Scripture. It's both in Scripture and the statute book. Then let the magistrates who have made it of no effect thank themselves and their own wives and daughters go astray. She wants her dead. Now, what is, Hoth what is Hawthorne doing in this marketplace scene with these various, these alternative readings of this scene? What's he doing? Because he's going to do this a lot. Is everybody following? We've got five women four of whom are 
<laughs> mean, just really mean and vindictive. There's the one with a baby who is tender, but the others put a brand on her forehead, kill her. You know, um, so a couple of things. One is, what is Hawthorne doing, and where does this vindictiveness come from? What's the root of this in this community? This is our founding. What, where does this come from, and why does Hawthorne present? How, put it differently, how well does each one of these people read the scene in front of them? Dante, the women who have the intelligence of love. Is charity or love motivating what they see the way they read what's in front of them? Is everybody clear? And it's interesting, not only do they not see because they, their hearts are so lacking in love, but, but look at this, I mean the irony of this. God, this, the, ironies are, the ironies are building. Um, at the bottom 40, one of the women says, people say, said another, that the Reverend Master Dinsdale, her godly pastor, takes it very grievously to heart that such a scandal should have come upon his congregation. What's the irony of that line? Because How well do they see inside of a person? And how well... And, and yeah, how, how much are they living their lives based on outward appearances? Conformity to the church. This is what the church says. So they're reading outwardly and they're bringing to it this self-righteous, fair sake quality. And it shows how badly they're all reading. And, and the way they act on what they're doing. So here's our founding. It's about sin and people's responses to sin. This is the opening. It's full of ironies. Where's Hawthorne taking us? How's he gonna... How's he, going to an, how's he going to answer this spirit that's present? Sorry? We'll find out in a couple of weeks. <laughs> well, you might finish earlier, so you might find out this next week. Okay, confession next week. It's one of the things we could do to help our sins. <laughs> See you guys. Yeah. I hope you enjoyed it. Have you all finished it? No. I have. Yeah. You, did you enjoy it, Jenny? Yeah. Yeah. Did yeah. you know, Carl and I keep saying to each other the strangest thing. Both of us believe that we read this book in high school. Yeah. But I don't remember 95% yep. of this yep. stuff. Yep. So I, either we didn't really read it in high school or they did.